Today we're celebrating Jesus' resurrection and the first Easter Sunday. But if things had stayed the way they were on that first Easter Sunday, it's unlikely we would be celebrating anything today. In our reading from the end of Mark's Gospel, we left the disciples afraid. The tomb was empty, but their reaction was not joy. It was not excitement. Mark told us they were trembling, bewildered, and afraid. And they said nothing to anyone. They weren't falling over themselves to believe in a resurrection. They were skeptical people. They knew an empty tomb could be explained in lots of different ways. An empty tomb by itself did not fill those people with joy and courage. It left them silent and afraid. But those disciples did not stay silent and afraid. As we read on in the New Testament, we find them changed into bold proclaimers of good news. The good news that Jesus has risen. And through him we can receive salvation and reconciliation with God. Something changed those disciples. What was it? Well, the rest of the New Testament gives us two answers. Acts chapter 1 tells us that after his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs, proofs that he was alive. That's the first thing that happened to them. They met the risen Jesus. They had more than just an empty tomb. They had Jesus himself raised to new life. The second thing that changed the disciples was the arrival of the Holy Spirit. That was something Jesus had promised. Before he went to the cross, he told them, after he rose and returned to heaven, he would send his Spirit to guide them into the truth. The Holy Spirit would help them understand the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus also said the Spirit would give them power. Power to overcome their fear and share the good news with others. That arrival of the Spirit is described in Acts chapter 2 at the beginning of the chapter. The disciples are all together in the city of Jerusalem. The city is crammed with visitors because of the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Jerusalem wasn't a large place at the time, but historians estimate around 200,000 people would have crowded in from all over the world. And in the midst of that, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in the languages of those visitors from around the world. And the first result of that was confusion. The crowds were asking, what's going on? What does this mean? Some of them wondered if the disciples are drunk. But Peter stands up and he speaks to the crowd. He says, what's going on here is not drunkenness. It is the beginning of something new. History has turned a corner. A new era has begun. It's a new era God promised through his Old Testament prophets. And it's all been brought about through Jesus Christ. That's Peter's big message. And this morning we're going to listen in to the details of his message. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, explains Easter to us. So if you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, 
We're going to pick up early on in Peter's message. It's page 1093 in the church Bibles or in the large print Bibles 1692. Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin at verse 22 and read down to verse 41. Peter says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is God's word. And it confronts us with four truths about Jesus. Four truths that are simple but very, very significant. First of all, Jesus is God's son. Second, his death 
was part of God's plan. Third, he is God's king, the Lord of history. Fourth, he is our only hope for forgiveness and new life. First of all, in verse 22, Jesus is God's son. If you look at that again, Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. The four New Testament Gospels record many miraculous things that Jesus did. And here Peter explains those miracles, wonders, and signs, they weren't just party tricks. They had a very definite purpose. They were God's way of accrediting Jesus to those who saw his miracles. And they're God's way of accrediting him to you and me as we read the eyewitness accounts of his miracles. Another way of putting that is to say Jesus' miracles bear witness to who he is. They reveal his identity. And as we read the accounts of his life, we could put his miracles into four main categories. The first category might not be the most obvious when we think of miracles, wonders, and signs. It's the unique authority of Jesus' teaching. The people who listened to Jesus were used to teachers. They heard them all the time. But they were amazed at Jesus' teaching. It came with an authority they had never encountered before. We read about that in Mark chapter 1. The second category of Jesus' miracles is his authority over nature. Mark chapter 4 tells us about a time when he and his disciples were caught in a boat in the middle of a furious storm. What did Jesus do as his disciples were thinking they were going to die? Jesus stood up and he rebuked the wind and waves. He ordered them, quiet, be still. And they did what they were told. Mark tells us the wind died down and it was completely calm. That is not normal. It's evidence of a unique authority over nature. The disciples knew it was unique. They didn't take it in their stride like it was an everyday thing. They were terrified, Mark tells us. And they asked each other, who is this? Who are we in this boat with? Even the wind and the waves obey him. A third category of Jesus' miracles is his authority over sickness and death. With a word or with a touch, Jesus could make the deaf hear, the blind see, and the lame walk. He could heal and restore lepers. And on several occasions, he showed that death itself is under his power. Just as the wind and the waves obeyed his command, so Jairus' daughter obeyed when she lay dead on a bed and he said to her, get up. You can read that in Mark chapter 5. Lazarus, who'd been in the grave for four days, he obeyed when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. That's in John chapter 11. Luke chapter 7 tells us the widow of Nain's son also obeyed 
when Jesus interrupted that boy's funeral procession and said to the boy in the coffin, young man, get up. How did the crowds react to that? They certainly didn't take it as an everyday thing. Luke tells us they were all filled with awe. And praise God, they said, God has come. They were blown away by Jesus' unique power. They realized it was divine power. And that leads to the fourth category of Jesus' miracles, his authority to forgive sin. That might not seem like the most spectacular of the signs Jesus performed, but it was hugely significant because everyone knew only God could forgive sin. Because sin is first and foremost against God. But Jesus had the audacity to forgive what only God can forgive. That caused as big a stir as any of the more spectacular things he did. The teachers of the law were on it like a shot. They said, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The answer is no one. You can find that incident in Mark chapter 2. And all of this is what Peter has in mind when he says here in Acts 2, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. The unique authority of Jesus' teaching, his authority over nature, over sickness and death, and his authority to forgive sin. All of that bears witness to Jesus' identity. Those things attest to who he is. Look how Peter puts it in verse 22. These things God did among you through Jesus. All that Jesus did was God working. All that Jesus said was God speaking. Jesus' life showed he is who he claimed to be. God's son with the same power and authority as God. If you're not sure about Jesus, read the eyewitness accounts of his life and ask yourself, who could do and say these things? These are not normal, everyday things. They bear witness to Jesus as the unique Son of God. And that makes what Peter says next so striking. Jesus' death was part of God's plan. Verse 23, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Let's think about the second part of that first. There's no doubt Jesus' death was a great evil. The greatest evil. God the Son, having been unmistakably shown to be God the Son by his miracles, wonders, and signs, he was nevertheless Put to death. And notice how Peter describes it. This was not just the work of a few wicked men. He says to the crowds, You put him to death. 
you who were shown the truth about who he really is. Yes, it only took a few to beat Jesus. It only took a few to press the crown of thorns on his head and nail him to the cross. But Jesus' death was the work of all those who saw his miracles, wonders, and signs and still shouted, crucify him. Jesus' death was most definitely an act of evil. It was an act of defiance against God after God had made it clear who Jesus is. Humanity is responsible for Jesus' death. And it's a responsibility we all share. When we turn away from Jesus, despite all God has done to demonstrate Jesus' identity, when we say, I don't have enough proof, God says, I have given you more than enough proof. I accredited Jesus to you. I commissioned these eyewitness accounts. And I preserved them through the centuries. So you would have enough proof. If you and I turn away from that proof, we are just as guilty as those crowds who shouted crucify. Jesus' death was an evil. Humanity bears responsibility for that evil. And at the very same time, Jesus' death was part of God's plan. Those Jewish leaders, they were not forced to accuse Jesus falsely. Judas was not forced to betray him. Pilate was not forced to give in to the Jews. And the crowds were not forced to call for the death of Jesus. They all made their own choices. And they're guilty for them. And above it all, the sovereign Lord was working out his plan to bring salvation to a lost world. So Jesus was not overpowered by those wicked men. He was not outmaneuvered by their strategies against him. He was handed over by his father so he could be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Jesus willingly submitted to be wounded and punishment, punished so we could be healed, so we could experience peace. It was God's plan that his son would die in our place, that he would suffer as our substitute. And so Good Friday was both the darkest day in all of history and the greatest outpouring of God's grace. The cross of Christ is God's solution to our greatest problem. The divine wrath we all deserved was poured out on God himself. So you and I can run to the cross and escape that divine wrath. When we put our trust in Jesus the Savior, we can say with confidence, my sin has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. I can face judgment day without fear because God's account book says my sin is paid for. 
Jesus went to the cross in order to deal with my sin. Peter has shown the significance of Jesus' life, the significance of his death, and now he moves to the resurrection and its significance. He tells us Jesus is God's king, the Lord of history. If we were to read through the Old Testament, we would find that two of the realities that absolutely dominate the Old Testament scriptures are the sacrificial system of Israel and the kingship of Israel. So much of the Old Testament is devoted to those things. And the New Testament explains the significance of them both. The sacrificial system was what lay behind verse 23 here in our passage. On the cross, Jesus died as the ultimate sacrificial lamb. All those Old Testament sacrifices, they were a huge signpost to Jesus. And now, as he turns to the resurrection, Peter shows how the Old Testament kingship was also a huge signpost to Jesus. After speaking about the cross, look what he says in verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. In verse 24, Peter says... It was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. Why? Death keeps its hold on everyone else. Why was Jesus different? Well, to answer that, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, a psalm attributed to King David. David, who lived about a thousand years before Jesus. In his time, David was God's Messiah. Messiah means anointed king. And after having David anointed, God made a promise to him. A promise that one of David's descendants would reign forever. And so from then on, there was this expectation of an eternal king from David's line. That's the context of Psalm 16, where we find David looking to the future with great confidence. And he's confident, notice, not just of an existence beyond death, he's confident of a physical existence beyond death. In verse 26, my body or my flesh will rest in hope. David expects a future for his whole person, not just his soul. And that future will be in God's presence. He says that in verse 28, you will fill me with joy in your presence. In Psalm 16, David was speaking about himself, obviously. But he wasn't just speaking about himself. In fact, David's confidence for his own future was anchored in God's promise of a future king from David's line. 
Peter explains that in verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. A thousand years before the first Easter, God's Messiah, David, looked ahead to God's ultimate Messiah, Jesus. David's hope for the future and everyone else's hope for the future would stand or fall on whether Jesus was abandoned to the realm of the dead, on whether Jesus was allowed to decay. And Peter says, we know what happened. We stand here as witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. We're here to tell you he was not abandoned to death. So does that mean David's hope was misplaced? If this is actually talking about Jesus, does that mean David won't experience this future that he hoped for? No. Jesus' resurrection shows David's hope was well placed. His confidence in God was vindicated. Because Jesus rose, David will rise too one day. God's people in the Old Testament were looking ahead in faith, trusting God's promises, and they will rise with those of us who trust in Jesus today. We look back in faith, they looked forward in faith. But we're all looking to the same person. We're all looking to the same event, the Son of God who died and rose again. That's the significance of God's promise to David. Because Jesus rose, we know he is the promised king. He is the descendant of David who will reign forever. That means he's not only our savior from sin, as significant as that is, Jesus is also God's king. He is the Lord of history. He's the savior of all those who trust in him. And he's the king of everyone. Those who trust in him and those who don't. Look at verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Verse 34 quotes another of David's psalms. This time it's Psalm 110. And the significance is David is listening in as the Lord speaks to someone David calls my Lord. In the psalm, the Lord is an English translation of the name Yahweh. That's the personal name of the God of the Bible. 
So David says, Yahweh said to my Lord. In his lifetime, David was God's king. But David knew he wasn't the eternal king. When that eternal king came, he would be David's Lord. David would bow to him. So long before Jesus came, David was able to speak about him as my Lord. He was able to say, my Lord will be given the place of authority at God the Father's right hand. And from that place of authority, he will unfold the Father's plan for all of history. He will unfold that plan until every single one of his enemies are under his feet, defeated. Peter says the reality David spoke about from a distance has become reality here in Jerusalem. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The risen Jesus has been given authority over history. He is the Lord of history. And he's the Lord of every single person in history. Sometimes people hear about Jesus and their response is, that's okay, maybe that's significant for you, but it's not for me. If that is your response to Jesus, please realize whether you like it or whether you don't, Jesus is the most significant issue in your existence. He is the Lord of history, which means he is the Lord of your life. So whether you like it or not, the question we all have to answer is, Am I a friend of Jesus or an enemy of Jesus? There's no third option. There's no box we can tick that says Easter might be significant for you, but it's not for me. Easter is equally significant for all of us. Because Jesus is the risen, exalted Lord, we are either among his friends who bow willingly at his feet, grateful for his forgiveness and wanting to live to serve him, or we're among his enemies who don't live to serve him and will one day be crushed under his feet. There's no third option on the table. And that means, finally, Jesus is our only hope for forgiveness and new life. The crowd listening to Peter have been listening very carefully. And so they get the significance of Peter's message. Look at verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. These men and women realized they are in a desperate situation. They realized their guilt. They did reject Jesus, even if they didn't hammer the nails with their own hands. They did not acknowledge and they did not submit to God's king. And therefore, they're counted as enemies of God's king. And they feel the seriousness of their predicament. What shall we do? Is there any hope for us? Is there any way out of this? It doesn't feel good to recognize our sin. But it's a good place to get to. It's positive when the reality of big, eternal things hits us hard. It's a big step forward when we realize Jesus was not just a nice guy from Israel who flamed out 2,000 years ago. He's the risen Lord of history, including your history and mine. When that reality hits us, we are blessed. But it doesn't feel good. It makes us desperate. What shall we do? And notice what Peter says. He does not say, go and try to do better. He doesn't say, get some Christian friends and try to fit in with them. See if it rubs off on you. He says in verse 38, repent. What does that mean? It means to turn from sin and to God. It means to admit we need forgiveness. It means to trust in Jesus as the only way to forgiveness. You can't earn it, but Jesus earned it for you on the cross. Come to him and receive what he earned for you. Stop clinging to sin and cling to Jesus instead. Stop trying to rule your own life and make Jesus ruler of your life. That is what it means to repent. And then, as an outward sign of your repentance, be baptized. Go public about your faith in Jesus. Show your commitment to him in front of others. And notice in verse 38, along with forgiveness, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The good news about Easter is that Jesus doesn't just forgive you and then send you off to sink or swim on your own. No, he supplies new life and the power to live it. And persevere in it. The Holy Spirit is the enabler who comes in and starts renovating your life. 
slowly, by God's power, turning you into what you were always meant to be. A fruitful, beautiful servant of God. And notice who all of this is for. This message of forgiveness in new life. It's not just for the crowds in Jerusalem. It's not just for first century Jews. Verse 39 throws it wide open. This is for all who are far off. All without distinction. Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, the healthy and the sick, the churchgoer and the person new to church, the respectable and the outcast. If you hear this good news, it's for you. Come and get in on it. Verse 41 says, about 3,000 responded that day. That's a lot, but it's still a tiny percentage of the 200,000 people in the city. Even on this momentous day in Jerusalem, with as clear a message and as gifted a preacher as you're ever going to get, only some took hold of forgiveness in new life. you're waiting for the day when trusting in Jesus is the end thing, you might be waiting a very, very long time. Until Jesus returns, we will always be living in a corrupt generation that largely doesn't want to know. That's what Peter calls it in verse 40. Humanity is proud Humanity is resistant to God's way. So if you and I are going to step forward and bow the knee to Jesus, we will usually have to do it in spite of our friends. We'll have to do it in spite of what society thinks of us. It's highly unlikely that following Jesus will ever make us popular. But... Jesus is our only hope for forgiveness and new life. We are wise to trust him. Whatever other people think of us. And because of Easter, we have every reason to trust him. We have every reason to tell others about him. Because Jesus is the living Savior and King. And that changes everything. We want to celebrate the truth of Easter together and the difference it makes as we sing, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed.